This year marks the 50th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. The murder of the 35th president was a shock to the nation, but unlike the majority of our national tragedies, this one continues to resonate in the collective consciousness. Every so often, in fact, it seems to capture the public's attention. It surely may do so again this year. Despite the official findings of the commission, headed by Chief Justice Earl Warren, which was that the crime was pulled off by one disturbed man acting alone, the public is still convinced that we do not know the truth and that there's more to the story. The public has felt that way since not long after the report of the Warren Commission was made public. The reasons for doubt? Well, compelling evidence contrary to the official conclusions has been unearthed over the years and continues to be uncovered. The best original source of disquieting data was the Warren Commission's own evidence, and curiously a great deal of it was kept hidden from the public. This or that document has been painstakingly pulled into the public eye over the years, and the doubts have only grown. Many books have been written about this great mystery. Our guest today has written one of the finest. Like Oliver Stone's epic film, JFK, this book centers on one of the most dramatic episodes in the history of the case, the investigation of New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison. The title of the book is Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. I've known author James Eugenio for almost 20 years now, and I can attest to his being a diligent and tireless researcher of this case. For years, he and Lisa Pease published Probe Magazine, which looked into many aspects of the JFK and other American political assassinations. We've had him on the program before, and no doubt will again, but the newest edition of his book, which includes major changes from the first edition in the wake of new data, cries out for a discussion. So... Discuss we shall. I'm glad to be able to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, James Eugenio. Hi, Doug. How are you doing? Well, Jim, let's, let's reset the clock back to the 1990s. In the wake of Oliver Stone's JFK and, and the outcry that that film generated over the number of JFK assassination documents being hidden, which was, of course, the last thing the film closed with, revealing that number, the first President Bush established the Assassination Records Review Board. Its mandate was to get out most of those records. But its I was under the impression that that was not a very successful effort, but your book points out that actually quite a bit did get released. Can we talk about uh, some of the things that we've seen since then? In one sense, it was successful, because it did double the universe of pages of documents that we have in the National Archives, from 2 million to 4 million. Wow. There was a lot of interesting stuff declassified from the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and the Garrison investigation. Some of these documents on the Garrison investigation came from the estate of Jim Garrison. Uh, he had left a lot of this stuff to his son, yeah. Lyon Garrison. Uh -huh. And Lyon contributed many of these to the collection. But also, the DA in New Orleans who took over for Garrison, Harry Connick, actually had a file cabinet full of this stuff in his office. He got into a dispute with the Assassinations Record Review Board. He didn't want to give it to them. They had to file a lawsuit, and they ended up getting the documents from him. So that was quite a lot of documents that the ARB got um, on the Garrison investigation. Now, I'm sure you know, since you're pretty well versed in this, that compared to the Warren Commission, the House Select Committee published less than half the volumes that the Warren Commission did. The Warren Commission published 26 volumes of evidence 
along with its report. The House Select Committee on Assassinations only published 12. So there was a lot of stuff to get from the House Select Committee, and they actually did do a fairly good job. Uh, one of the most important things, of course, which I hope we talk about later, is the famous Lopez report Yes, written by Eddie Lopez and, and Dan Hardaway about Oswald's trip to Mexico City. I know you actually had a chance to speak with uh, with Eddie Lopez about that, and yes, we will we will go into that some length here as we get as we go along. But to take up the other half of your question, uh, yeah, there was some stuff that they didn't get, and there's still people trying to go after those now. I I know, for example, there's a lot of documents because someone at the National Archives sent it to me being withheld on the actions of Clay Shaw's lawyers. Uh, during the Garrison investigation. Now, you read my book, so you know that there's a lot of pages in the book about this. Obviously, I wish I would have had these other documents, because apparently there's even more stuff that I didn't know about, just how much in cahoots Shaw's lawyers were with the um, FBI, the CIA, Washington, D.C., in order to thwart Garrison. I know, and there's a lot of documents on that they sent me about David Ferry that's still being held, and I'm sure you're aware of the stuff about George Dionides and the DRE in New Orleans. The DRE was the group that Oswald had this action with. Yeah, Jim, we've had, we've had Jefferson Morley on the program to talk a little bit about that. But, uh, but yes, we should remind our listeners that Clay Shaw was the only person actually tried for conspiracy in the assassination of John Kennedy by uh, Jim Garrison. He was acquitted. And, uh, and yes, we will get into that as, as we go along. When we talk about the, the Kennedy case, Jim, people always want to know, well, what's your take on it? Well, that's, that's the basic bottom line. And I want to, I, I know we're not going to solve the case as we talk today, but I want to take a detour into some of those major conclusions of the Warren Commission and just quickly kind of uh, give a thumbnail sketch of what we might say about those. Um, I want to start with the fact that Oswald was supposed to have been a communist. He did defect to the Soviet Union at age 20 in 1959. And I guess my first uh, a basic question would be, uh, would you say that uh, he was a genuine defector, or was he something else? I, I think that we pretty much can say with certainty that Oswald was not a genuine defector, that he was part of a false defector program set up by the CIA with the help of the Navy Department, and he was part of a group of people that was actually sent over there at around this time period. And... This explains, of course, why he was let go from the Marine Corps so early, before his term was up, how he got out so quickly, all right, because his, his hardship discharge was processed in two weeks. He should have taken six months, all right, how he actually got to Europe when he only had like $203 in his bank account, stayed at these two luxury hotels in Helsinki, and then was able to come back with a Russian wife. I mean, it's the only way to explain all these funny things, which the Warren Commission sort of papered over. So in my opinion, and I go into a lot of this in my book, you know, yeah, Oswald was not a genuine defector. We should reiterate to our listeners that we're going to do the best we can to cover this topic today, but there is never a substitute for reading the actual book. There's so much more in any book, and of course, uh, we think very highly of yours and hope people will do that. But... Um, Per the Warren Report, and I know this is going to be cited all over the place, it's still being cited this year, Jim. They say, well, you know, Oswald, uh, he had no Confederates along the way. And, and with, a, with slightly with tongue-in-cheek, I ask you, uh, in your opinion, did he have some suspicious associates? <laughs> I think that you could start um, with George DeMorne's show. I mean, here's a guy 
who is essentially waiting for him when he gets back from Russia and is one of the most fascinating people in this entire tale. Uh, a white Russian, okay, his, whose father uh, lost a, a fortune in the oil business when the Red Russians took over. All right. Then he has uh, a brother, Dmitry, who exchanges letters with Alan Dulles, the CIA director, all right, and works with that works for Alan Dulles on a publication called Russia Review. Uh, once he's in, in, in the United States, and then of course uh, later in life tells Edward Epstein that uh, he was told by the CIA station chief in Dallas to befriend to befriend Oswald. All right, then of course it's him who introduces him to Ruth and Michael Payne. Now. I go on for about 12 pages on Ruth and Michael Payne in, in my book. Let's suffice it to say, if there's ever going to be a reopening of this case, which I hope there is, they should be on the short list to go before the grand jury. We should stop right there, Jim, just to backtrack a bit, to point out for listeners that the, that the Ruth and Michael Payne were people that befriended the Oswalds and gave them a place to live right. and, uh, were per, and, and per painted in the Warren Commission as... Some very kind-hearted, uh, good-natured people that reached out to these 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 poor uh, these poor folks, and of course, as you do point out in the book, at some length, they've got connections that are very suspicious all over the map. Right. The story on Ruth and Michael Payne is they were these kindly, good Samaritan Quakers, you know, who were living in Dallas at the time and felt sympathy for Lee and Marina. All right, and took them in under their wing and were just oh so sweet and oh so kind to them. In my book, I go over all this evidence, which pretty much cinches the case, that Ruth and Michael Payne were extensions of the Eastern Establishment, who happened to be stationed in the Dallas-Fort Worth area at the time. You go back through Michael Payne's history, and he goes back to the Cabots and the Forbes families, you know, in, uh, in in Boston, Massachusetts, the Boston Brahmin yeah. type family. Okay, he had all kinds of relatives working in the State Department. All right, you know, um, Ruth Payne's father ends up working for the USAID Corporation, Agency for International Development, which is a shell company formed by the CIA to plant cover agents. You know, all over the world, which he was he was one of them. Her, her sister, Sylvia Hope, worked for the CIA at the time of Kennedy's assassination. Now, in the book, I quote an exchange between Ruth Payne and Jim Garrison when Ruth was a witness before Garrison's grand jury. And Garrison says words to the effect, Miss Payne, why is the government concealing the agency of government that your sister works for from me. And Ruth says, oh, they are? <laughs> and he goes, oh, yes, they are. They won't tell me what agency of government she works for. Can you help me out on that? And Ruth said, oh, geez, I don't know. So in other words, we're supposed to believe that in the summer of 1963, she stayed at her sister's house for eight days and never once asked her, where do you go to work in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> well, the case does have quite a few remarkable coincidences, I think we'll note as we go along here. Well, anyway, the, the punchline is she yeah. worked for the CIA. Yes. And that's what she did not want to tell Garrison. Yes, and that, that, that's, that's going to be a recurring theme on today's program, I think, as well. 
Uh, but I'd like to go back to the day of the murder, uh, which anyone who's old enough to have uh, been watching television like, like I was and on that day, those days of that weekend back in 63, a stunned nation is told that they have a suspect in custody. And uh, Oswald is trotted out before the public. He's put, he's put on display. And uh, when asked if there's anyone else, the DA, Henry Wade, says, no, it's only him. Which, which the, the degree to which such a pronouncement is premature uh, is rather astounding. They'd only had him in custody for a few hours at that point. But everything followed from there. He was fingered as the guy, the only guy on day one. And that, that was basically the cue that uh, investigative agencies followed. Yes, that's, that's absolutely correct. Once he was apprehended at the Texas Theater, the railroading of Oswald began, mainly through the press, okay, and then also through the Dallas police. And, and at the time, well, he was only going to live for 48 hours more. Right. You know, but at, 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 at the time, uh, Oswald did not have a lawyer, okay, um, and was interrogated without a stenographic record for something like 10 to 12 hours. And, and no tape right. recorder, we had hasten to add. It was none of it was tape. Right, no stenographic record. In other words, no tape recorder and no secretary taking shorthand notes. Right. You know, which is really kind of ridiculous when you think about it. You know, and then the capper is that when he's going to be transferred to county jail, what happens? Well, in literally while he's in the arms of the Dallas police, this Jack Ruby guy, you know, rushes forward, one shot in the stomach, and Oswald is dead. This is so bizarre, okay, because, you know, if you take a look at what the Dallas police uh, said that day, they had a guy guarding the Main Street ramp, all right, and the Warren Commission said he came down the Main Street ramp. This was later exposed as being a cover story. There was a, a cover-up inside a Dallas police department to conceal the fact that Ruby did not come down the Main Street ramp. He had access to a secret door, okay, in which he was helped in by a Dallas policeman. And by the way, you know how bad this cover-up is? Even the Warren Commission <laughs> suspected that this was the case. Okay, Bert Griffin, Bert Griffin, who was in charge of the Ruby side of the investigation, suspected that Ruby had help getting in to the Dallas Police Department. They lost their patience with the cops that kept saying, nope, nope. Yeah, and, and Griffin essentially blew up at him. Well, when he blew up at this witness named Patrick Dean, okay, the Dallas police got in contact with the Warren Commission and said, hey, you better not be doing this stuff with us. And the Warren Commission backed off. So the whole detention of Oswald is really, really so questionable. You really got to wonder, were the Dallas police actually in on the plot to have him killed? You really have to wonder this. We're speaking with author James Eugenio about his book, Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. And Jim, I just want to add just briefly, because I don't want to get into it at length, that I can totally substantiate what you're saying about uh, Ruby in the basement, because I tracked down an FBI agent in the greater Sacramento area, and I asked him about the case. He said, yes, he worked on it. Yes, he said to me, I interviewed the cop that let Ruby into the basement. And I'm looking at him like, um, well, um, you're aware that's not the official version. And he kind of looked at me surprised like, no, I interviewed the cop that let him in. And it was just like, do you have a copy of that report? He said, no, I'm sure it's in the files. Well, as you can attest, and I'm sure I can attest, it ain't in the files, but that is probably, no. he probably did talk to that person. 
But on the weekend of the assassination, Jim, there's there's a couple of stunners. One I know you go on a bit about in the book that we need to spend some time on. I always thought it was one of the most amazing things in the case. Um, Oswald's in custody. And the research tells them from the CIA that, you know, he did make a trip to Mexico City just a couple months ago. Really? Oh, yeah, we've got tapes of him down there. The tapes are flown to Texas. The, the FBI, I believe it is, and the Dallas police, uh, certainly the FBI, takes a listen and sort of blandly concludes, oh, that's not the guy we have in custody. Now, we have a man on tape in Mexico saying, I'm Lee Oswald, and I want to talk to the, I want to talk to the various communist consulates about it. It's not the real guy. And, and yet this is buried from day one. I, I bet a lot of our listeners are actually surprised to even learn this now. In my opinion, that's one of the most fascinating aspects of this entire case. Because the night of the assassination, CIA sends a tape up to the Texas border. And then it's played for these FBI guys in Dallas who had been interviewing Oswald. And it's supposed to be a tape of Oswald in Mexico City being picked up by one of the microphone devices. The story has it that he was at the Cuban consulate and the Russian consulate, and the CIA had both places bugged. Well, the FBI guys listen to this. They relay this message to Hoover, and they say, this isn't the guy we're talking to. This is not his voice. And so Hoover then tells Johnson, and we have this on a tape transcript. This is really funny. He says words of the effect, there must be a different Oswald down there. <laughs> so, because my agents tell me this isn't the guy that they have down there in Dallas. Uh-huh. Right? So then I note in my book what is remarkable. I think that's on the 23rd, that phone conversation. The day after the assassination. Yeah. On the 24th, once the CIA realizes that this is going to be a serious problem, the tapes are made to disappear. It's like Alice in Wonderland. You know, it's like the tape that was sent up you know, and the guys listened to, is now gone. And the CIA now starts to say, we only have transcripts. We don't have actual tapes of his voice. Which, of course, is baloney. You know, because there's, you know, the guys just heard it, and they just sent the message to Hoover. Right. So in my book, in my book, I go into this in, in a lot of detail. Because it's pretty clear to me that somebody made a mistake by sending that, that tape up there. Uh-huh. It was not supposed to have been done. And so what happened is that the higher-ups in the CIA got together with their liaison people in the FBI and said, we, we, this has got to stop. All right, we, we can't let this go any further because it's going to lead to too many unanswered questions. In my opinion, this is one of the key elements to the plot, and I go into this a lot in my book. Well, yeah, let, let, let's talk about the fact. Here we have the, uh, the, the supposed assassin of the president a couple months before running around Mexico City acting very suspicious, trying to get into these consulates, identifying himself on tape as Oswald when it's apparently, in some cases, not him. There's been much speculation about, about Earl Warren. He's a very well-respected man in American political history as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He was governor of California. I believe at one point the story is both parties nominated him as governor because they realized he was so qualified to, to assume that position. But Warren takes charge of what, you know, obviously appears to be cover-up in retrospect. People have pointed out the reason he got on board was that Lyndon Johnson sat him down and said, look, if we let this story out, 
that this this kid Oswald was down there and he's he's affiliated with the communists. We're going to have World War Three on our hands because the communists are behind that. That's that's widely believed by people. And I and I uh, I guess the question I have for you is, do you agree that's basically how Earl Warren signed on? Oh, I don't think there's any question about it. Okay, because we have this from uh, both sides of the story. We have this from both Johnson and we have this from Warren. Okay, Johnson told Richard Russell uh, in detail about how Warren did not want to do it, and then he brought out this stuff about Oswald to Mexico City and told him that I just talked to McNamara. He tells me there's possibility of 40 million people being dead in the first strike. Mm-hmm. And so Warren started to cry. I think it would shake up anybody, you know. You know 40 million people are going yeah. to be incinerated unless I take this job. Yeah. And so then Warren said the same thing to the Johnson Library, an interview he did after Johnson died. He mentioned it. And then in the Eisenberg memo, which is one of the declassified records of the Warren Commission, Warren told the Warren Commission lawyers at the first meeting that he didn't want to take the job. And that, you know, he sort of uh, was pushed into it by Johnson telling him that he had to take it. In fact, do you want me to read that memo? Because I think it's very interesting. Sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. This is a memo made by Melvin Eisenberg at the first staff meeting. Quote, when the position had first been offered to him, he declined it on the principle that Supreme Court justices should not take this kind of role. His associate justices concurred in this decision. At this point, however, President Johnson called him. The president stated that rumors of the most exaggerated kind were circulating in this country and overseas. Some rumors went as far as attributing the assassination to a faction within the government wishing to see the presidency assumed by Johnson. Others, if not quenched, could conceivably lead the country into a war which could cost 40 million lives. No one could refuse to do something which might help to prevent such a possibility. The president convinced him this is an occasion on which actual conditions had to override general principles. The Chief Justice then discussed the role of the Commission. He placed emphasis on the importance of quenching rumors and precluding future speculation, such as that which has surrounded the death of Lincoln. Then, listen to this last line. Mm -hmm. He emphasized that the Commission had to determine the truth, whatever that might be. Now, if you spend 160 (laughs) words telling how the world's going to be incinerated. Unless you cover up what really happened. And then at the end of the line, at the end you say, we must determine the truth no matter what it will be. Now these young lawyers on the commission, what do you think they're going to listen to? The previous 160 words or that one last sentence? I'm glad you read that, but it clearly it clearly points out to people that ask, how could this have happened with someone like Earl Warren at the helm? They obviously were being set up to cover up for national security reasons to avoid World War III what really happened. Right. Clearly, as you, as you point out, it was set up as a cover-up from the beginning. Right. And by the way, in my book, when I talk about Wesley Lieber, one of the Warren Commission lawyers, interviewing one of the most important witnesses in the entire case, Sylvia Odio, when Sylvia Odio talked to the church committee, she said that Liebler had told her that even if they come upon evidence of a conspiracy, they had been told by Earl Warren to shove it under the rug. It was the first time this had ever come out. When Jane Fonzie, the investigator, said to her, he really said that? And she said, I would swear to God on a stack of Bibles that he did. Wow. So in other words, that shows you that these guys listened to him. 
Well, apparently so. All right, we're going to pause this discussion right there for a moment and take a much-needed break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for the third segment. We will continue this discussion. (laughs) 